Like I said, we have been uh, diving into and teaching about the true nature of God for several weeks now, and uh, it's been um, a great uh, lesson and a great experience just um, maybe for the first time that you've heard these things or even as a refresher uh, course of just understanding and, and getting to uh, that heart level of understanding who God is, what he is, and the love that he has for us. I'd like to start with uh, the opening statement on the sheet. If, if you didn't get a sheet, um, uh, there should be some in the back. See, um, I think Jerry's or Fran's back there. They can help you out if you didn't get one. But the opening statement says, God is who he is regardless of what we believe about him. His nature and character do not change. However, our perception of God has a major impact on how we relate to, receive from, and represent him. Because God's character and nature have been so misrepresented, we are not seeing the results the Bible promises, and the truth about God's nature goes down a very distorted path. Therefore, it is imperative that we receive revelation knowledge of God's true nature, which is Jesus, so we can experience the fullness of God ourselves and represent him correctly to the rest of the world. Now this is going to be kind of a recap uh, teaching, kind of all the stuff that we've been learning over the past few weeks. Um, and there might be a, a few new things thrown in there, but we need to... That's how we learn. Uh, you don't learn by hearing something once. You learn it by hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing. And that's when it starts to come inside you and the seed is planted. And as you keep hearing it, that seed is being watered and it starts to grow and it starts to mature and it starts to push out the doubts and the worries and the anxiety that is inside of you and it replaces it with with God's truth and God's nature so we need to continue hearing and hearing and hearing about God and his love for us the church I think has really and I'm not saying all the church but a lot of the church in general has done a lot of damage to the character of God. Even the church will give credit to God what has really been done by Satan. There's a lot of the church out there that believes that anything bad that happens is a, is a judgment by God because he's angry with us because of the way that we're acting and the things that we've done and our disobedience. This gives people a distorted view of God. And it's really based on the Old Testament when we're supposed to be living under the New Testament or the New Covenant. The Old Testament was based on man's actions. It was based on what men did or do or didn't do, and then they were rewarded or they were punished accordingly. 
this was never God's best plan. It, was, it wasn't his A plan. Uh, it was a plan that man actually chose himself. And because God gave man dominion and control on this earth, God had to honor that. God had to give them what they wanted. They wanted to be, uh, we, they wanted to be, it, it wanted to be a performance-based relationship with him. They wanted to have a set of rules and regulations that when they did good, they got blessed, and when they did bad, they got punished. But they thought that they could be good, naturally. But they quickly found out um, that they couldn't even come close to what God's expectations are of uh, being righteous and being holy based on their performance or based on our performance or actions. God is perfect. God is holy. God is righteous. And no sin can be around him at all. He is a consuming fire. That's why Jesus, that's why God had to become a man because man had dominion and control on this earth. He had to come to this earth to perform perfectly, to live up to all the rules and regulations, to do the do's and don'ts, to live by the law. Some man had to do it to complete it in order for the law to be completed and fulfilled and, and brought to an end. And the old covenant could be fulfilled and the new covenant could be established. But a man had to do it. That's why Jesus came to this earth. He came to do it for us. That's why Jesus is our Savior. Because there's no man on this earth that could do it the way that Jesus did and could do it perfectly. So the confusion to people is when the church tells them that God is basing you or is judging you on your performance and he's punishing you on your performance. This is putting them back under the old, old covenant before Jesus came. Then the perception of God becomes one of anger, of wrath, of disappointment, of um, a critical, uh, harsh judging, you know, God. And some people will respond to that. They'll keep trying harder and harder. Other people will feel guilty and condemned. And other people will just rebel and just turn away from God, period. And so much to the point where they'll even deny that he exists at all. All this is from a perspective that the church is presenting to people. So much of the church acts like they are under the old covenant. They'll talk about Jesus. You know, they'll, you know, maybe, you know Jesus came and he died for our sins, <clears throat> which is great. But we got to take it from there. Okay, Jesus, thanks for doing that. But now 
we got to take it back, and the responsibility is on us, again, to perform correctly and uh, to do the do's and, uh, and don't do the don'ts. And when people are hit with sickness and disease, a lot of times the church tells them that that's God's way of trying to get their attention, punishing them um, uh, because they, they must have some sin in their life. They must have some sin that they didn't confess. You know, the First John 1, 9 is probably one of the verses that has caused the most confusion and the most condemnation in the body of Christ of any verse in the Bible. That verse taken out of context is actually, is actually the foundation of a whole religion. That you have to confess your sins to God in order for him to forgive you your sins. See, if you leave 1 John 1.9 in the context that it's written in, 1 John 1.9 is just part of a letter that John wrote. And John addressed the uh, letter uh, to the Gnostics, the Gnostic Jews at that time, who had come out of the understanding of Jesus, and they believed in Jesus, but they got a perverted idea that since they were forgiven of sin, they took it to an extreme that they actually thought that there was no sin at all. Sin didn't exist. You couldn't sin. They denied that there was sin. So they denied that they needed a Savior. They didn't need Jesus. Yeah, Jesus, what Jesus you know, did was good. Jesus was a good man, but Jesus um, was not necessary you know, to have uh, fellowship with God because sin, there is no such thing about sin. There's nothing to worry about. So this is the context that John is writing to the Gnostics, telling them, hey, first of all, you've got to admit that you're a sinner. If you want a relationship with God, the first thing you've got to do as an unbeliever is you have to admit that you are a sinner. And then he says, when you confess that you're a sinner and you confess your sins to, to God, then he's faithful and just to forgive you because of Jesus. Okay, because 1 John 1, 9 is if you have to confess your sins even as a believer for God to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness, then if you continue on and read and you hit verse uh, 1 of chapter 2, and that says, my little children, if you sin, then you have a, um, a propitiation. You have an advocator. You have a savior. You have Jesus. So which is it? It can't be both. It can't be that you have to confess your sins every time to be forgiven by God. And then it can't not be that you just uh, are always forgiven. It can't be both ways. So see, just that little twist of a misunderstanding of that First John 1, 9, understand that was written to unbelievers, and it was written to unbelievers who didn't even think there was such thing as sin. It has confused a lot of people, presented to them that uh, that verse was written to believers, that even after you're forgiven, after you're born again, 
that you need to continue confessing your sins. You need an advocate. You need to go to somebody else to confess all the sins you know, that you've done so you can be forgiven. And so God can clean you, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But see, that has led to a lot of issues, a lot of problems, a lot of wondering of, okay, if I confessed all my sins. You know, some people are better at it than others, and some people actually believe that they can confess all their sins. But the problem is there's other people that, that don't. They know they can't. Uh, Joseph Prince uh, teaches about this, and he, when he was a young believer, he believed he was taught this way. And he got to a point where that's, he said, that's all I would do every single second of every day is confess my sins. You know, every, every thought that I had that didn't line up with God, every word that came out of my mouth, every um, action that he did, he was concerned that it might be sinful. And so it got him so sin conscious, he became paranoid, he became uh, just full of worry and anxiety and fear, and he's a born-again believer. And see, this is what a sin conscience will do to you. It will totally wrap you up and lock you down so that you're absolutely no good for God here on this earth. And you're actually giving people a false impression of who God is. Here, a born-again believer should be full of peace and joy. And like Joseph Prince said, he was full of worry and anxiety, and he said people could see it on him wherever he went because it was just like fear was on him because he was so afraid. He was um, you know, not going to confess a sin you know, that uh, he might miss one and then, like a lot of religions say, if you're not all fessed up when you take your last breath, you know, you might not uh, be going to the right place. But this is an example of the damage that we can do presenting God this way to unbelievers and believers, both. See, Jesus took sin on him. Jesus took all sin. Jesus took each and every one of all of our sins that we have committed, committed today, going to commit tomorrow or the next day. He took them and bore them on his own body and he took them to the tree as us and for us. Jesus is our representative. Jesus was punished. Jesus was judged. So a lot of people say, oh, you're just saying, oh, we can do anything uh, and, and God's not going to you know, punish it. No. God's judgment was poured out mightily and heavily on Jesus. I mentioned it last week. We didn't get away and we haven't got away with a thing. It was all paid for righteously by Jesus. But he did it for a reason. He did it for a reason so that we could be free from sin, 
free from sin consciousness and alive unto him under the laws of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. No longer living by fear of God's judgment. No longer living by the uh, accusations and the condemnation of religion. And there's so much religion that will do that to you. They will, they'll try to suck you in and then they'll start condemning you that you're not doing enough that you're not doing it right. You're not doing it that their way. But I got news for you. God is not religious. You know, Jesus was the hardest and the toughest on the religious leaders when he was here on earth. How did he act toward the, even the woman that was caught in the middle of adultery. He loved her. He protected her. He defended her. And he didn't condemn her. The only one that had the true right to condemn her said, I don't condemn you because he knew that he was going to take that adulterous act in a few days he was going to take it to the cross and he was going to pay the price for that woman and he said woman who are those that condemn you and she said no one Lord he said go your way neither do I condemn you and sin no more and a lot of people say oh see you know Jesus telling her to be you know, be good, you know, watch your actions, watch what you do from now on. But you know, he gave her the free gift of no condemnation, free for her, not for him, the gift of no condemnation first. And then he said, go and sin no more. See, there's no more condemnation. So even if she did mess up, if she believed in Jesus and just confessed that Jesus, well, he paid for that sin just like he paid for uh, the adulterous sin, then there's no sin. See, where there's no law, there's no transgression. Just like in the, the uh, there's an expressway in Germany, Autobahn. Yeah, I don't know if it's still that way, but it used to be. It didn't have a speed limit. It's just like if we're driving on, uh, on the Audubon and we're going 100 miles an hour and a police officer tries to pull us over and give you a ticket for going 100 miles an hour. And we'll say, based on what? Where's the speed limit sign? Where's the law that says I can't go 100 miles an hour? And if he's a trustworthy policeman, he'd have to admit that you're right, I cannot give you a ticket. Even though you probably shouldn't be going 100 miles an hour, there's no law to be transgressed, so there's no punishment that can be handed out. So it's the same thing with us. Does that give you freedom to do anything you want, to sin? Like Paul said, God forbid. When you come to an understanding and a knowledge of who you are in Christ, 
this awesome position that we have been placed in, what Jesus has done for us, the love that he has demonstrated for us, then it makes us want to just serve him and do things for him and, and love him back. It doesn't, you know, when I got this, I say, I, I don't go out and sin more now. And if I'm going to rate it, I know I sin a lot less when I came to this understanding. And I've been raised, born and raised in church all my life, born and raised Baptist, and was condemned every time I sinned, and I would just beg for God to forgive me. And I was some like Joseph Prince, just got to a point where I became fearful that I might not be confessing good enough or... Um, you know, doing everything that I need to do to take care of that sin that I committed. But like I said, that's all a sin consciousness and it keeps us bound up in fear. It keeps us bound up in worry, which leads to sickness, which leads to disease, which leads to um, just the whole uh, negative um, experience of death and leading up to death. That's why God wants us free from that. But God demonstrates who he is perfectly through Jesus. And we've got to stop trying to come up with clever ways, clever sayings, clever videos, clever ways of, of trying to present God and get back to getting more of a revelation of Jesus. Let's look at John 1, 16 through 18. That's the first uh, scripture on your sheet. And this is on, out of the Amplified. It says, For out of his fullness, the superabundance of his grace and truth, we're talking about Jesus here, we have all received grace upon grace, spiritual blessing upon spiritual blessing, favor upon favor, and gift heaped upon gift. For the law was given through Moses. See, this was part of God, but it was a cold, harsh part. See, when Moses gave the law, it was on stone. It was cold. It was hard. But grace... The unearned, undeserved favor of God and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, he came and he delivered in himself. That's a relationship. That's not cold. That's warm. That's loving. He came. He wrapped his arms around us. He was there right with us. He's walking right with us. And now he's right inside of us. He came and he dwells and he abides. He's warm. He's loving. He's not cold as ice. He's not cold as stone. He's warm and loving and gracious. No one has seen God his essence, his divine nature at any time. 
the one and only begotten God that is the unique Son who is the intimate presence, who is in the intimate presence or the bosom of the Father. He has explained him and interpreted him and revealed him and revealed the awesome wonder of the Father. See, although we can have knowledge of God through the Old Testament law and through the Old Testament period, through the Old Testament books of Moses, the prophets, it's not complete. The true, complete representation of God has come only by the grace of God that is in Jesus Christ. Period. And we can learn from the Old Testament. Absolutely. We can learn from the books of Moses and the, um, and the prophets. But we always have to look at these books with the lens or the glasses of Jesus on. Always looking for Jesus because Jesus was concealed and hidden in types and shadows in the Old Testament. But a shadow is just a perversion, really, of the real thing. Like I can see my shadow on this floor going off that way. Now it has the kind of the shape of me, but right now it's very because it makes me, I'm tall, but it makes, this makes me look like I'm 12 feet tall and I'm only 6 feet tall. So the shadow is kind of of a perversion of who I really am. But when you look at the real me, you can see that I'm about 6 foot 3 and I'm not 12 foot tall. But see, the same thing with Jesus. We, we can see types and shadows and Jesus will show us types and pictures of God, but it's distorted. It's not the full picture. It's a shadow. So that's why when we go to the Old Testament, we have to look at it with the understanding of it being a type and a shadow and then look for the understanding of Jesus in it the understanding of what he has done and what he is going to do because it's a wonderful study to go through the Old Testament and, and see the types and shadows of Jesus and the examples of Jesus and, and what he's going to do uh, in the future. <clears throat> but we cannot use that, the Old Testament, as our foundation for God's true nature. That's not the complete picture. So when John read, writes that no man has seen God at any time, what he means is that before Jesus came, no one had ever truly or completely seen God, who he really is. And even though the statement is made that uh, Moses had spoken to God face to face, even that doesn't mean that Moses saw God uh, really face to face. Face to face is just a term that means um, that Moses was near an expression of the presence of God. 
So it might have been a, um, a column of smoke or a pillar of light or something like that. And, it, and then he was in a position where he can communicate with God, but it still wasn't like when it says face to face, he wasn't looking at, you know, in the face you know, of God. And he still didn't get a complete picture uh, of God. Even Moses, as great as the experience that he had <clears throat> you know, with God, it was still uh, uh, incomplete. It was not a complete uh, picture of God and his true nature. best way for us to see God is through Jesus. And like John 1, 16 through 18 said, that Jesus is in the bosom of the Father. It means the bosom is in this area. It means he's from the heart of God. And so he knows the heart of God. So he reveals the heart of God. And thus his true nature is revealed through him. Luke 9.35 is on your sheet. And uh, I'd like to read out of uh, another uh, account of this same, same happening. It happened on the, mount, on the mountain and it was when Jesus was transfigured. It's going to end in with, this is my beloved son, hear him. But Matthew 17, 1 through 7 says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. See, Moses represented the law. That's what he was there representing. Elijah was a prophet, and Elijah was there representing the prophets, the law and the prophets from the Old Covenant. That's why they were there. <coughs> Excuse me. Then Peter answered and said to them, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now see, Peter is trying to put Jesus on the same level as the law and the prophets, making him equal to, wanting to build them each a tabernacle in the same way, in the same fashion, signifying that they're, it was an equal representation of the law, the prophets, and of grace, which is Jesus. While he was still speaking, Peter didn't, wasn't even able to get that out of his mouth because this is a very religious statement. And it's something that the church still tries to do today. They still try to put the law and the prophets on the same level as Jesus. And they try to get you to live by the Old, the old Testament and the Old Covenant and the Old and the uh, Ten Commandments, putting it on uh, equal plane with Jesus. Listen to what God says. 
While Peter was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. Another account in there, it tells that when they opened up their eyes, they looked that Moses and Elijah were gone and it was only Jesus that they saw. So God the Father is telling them, don't put the law and the prophets on the same level as my son. My son is here to represent me perfectly. Hear him. Hear him who he says that I am. Hear him as he demonstrates my love for you. Hear him when he goes around healing all that are sick and oppressed of the devil. Hear him. Also, the disciples, they were afraid. They were afraid of God. They had been taught to be afraid of God. Any example or demonstration of God got it full of fear, dropped your knees. But what did Jesus do? But Jesus came and touched them. Jesus was shining so bright they could probably already even look at him. And what was so neat is this is different from Moses, who Moses was in the presence of God. When he left the presence of God, he was he was glowing. Okay? And we see now this is another song, an old testament song that says, I want to see the glory of God like Moses saw. No, we don't. We want the glory of God the way Jesus had it. Moses had a glory that was fading. Why do you want a glory that's fading? Why do you want to see God that way? So Moses' interaction with God, it was an exterior experience. It was something from the outside that affected him that made him glow for a certain period of time, but then the glow started to go. And he was embarrassed and he covered it up because he didn't want the people to see that it was going, that it was leaving. But Jesus' glow was different. Jesus' glow was a radiation. Jesus' glow was from the inside out. Jesus' glow wasn't fading. Jesus' glow never faded the whole time he was on earth. From this point on, his glow never faded. And his glow, he didn't have to be afraid of like the people were of Moses. And that's why the people started running to Jesus and running to that, that glory. And Jesus touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. This is another perfect representation of who God is. He does not want us to be afraid of him. First thing he comes over and does after he is uh, just radiating this glory and this glow and these people, they're afraid. Peter, James, and John are on the ground. And Jesus comes over and touches them. Don't be afraid. That's not who my father is. He's not here to scare you. He loves you. It's interesting that the names in the Bible is so, it's so amazing. It's just full of hidden nuggets. 
Peter, James, and John. Peter, name means stone. James, name means replace or supplanter. John means grace. So Peter, James, and John are there. Peter, the stone, representing the law. James, representing the replacement. John, representing grace. The law has been replaced by grace. Peter, James, and John. Stone replaced grace. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John 14, 6 through 7. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man, no one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. See, in this statement, Jesus was not only declaring that the only way anyone could come to the Father or being right standing with the Father was by him, but also that no one could see God truly or have a relationship with him except through him. That's why it's so important for us to understand that Jesus is in us. Because through Jesus, we can have the perfect relationship with the Father. Jesus in us, the hope of glory which we'll get to that, that verse. But let that be something you meditate on often, that Jesus is in you. Jesus is not off in the distance. Jesus is not in heaven. Jesus is in you, and you are in Jesus. You are one. And now you can see the Father perfectly because Jesus is right there. Jesus is in you. And when you get the knowledge, we get this understanding like we're getting tonight. You start looking for it. Okay, if you have this mentality, this separation mentality of God's off in a distance, Jesus is off in a, a distance, then at any time that you want to try to get close to God, then you feel you got to work it. You got to try to pull Jesus in. You got to try to uh, worship him enough. If I worship him long and hard enough, then his presence will come closer. You know, I got to get the... Uh, you know, the glory of heaven to fall down. And I do that by just, you know, falling on my knees and, and praying and worshiping. <clears throat> and a lot of things, they're not bad things. But when you're doing it to try to get God to move and to come down, then it, you're off track. That's Old Testament. That's what they had to do in the Old Testament. That's what they had to do in the Old Covenant. Under the New Covenant, we have his presence inside of us. We are the temple. He dwells in us. We're supposed to be radiating Jesus just like Jesus was radiating God. We're supposed to be doing the same thing. But what do we do? 
we tend to bring the same Old Covenant, Old Testament, condemnation and guilt upon people, telling them that they're sinners, they're going to hell, they better straighten their life up, and what they're, what's happened to them is punishment, and they probably deserved it anyway. That is blasphemy. That is antichrist. That is pure hate. That is not being a representative of God. And that's what God got. He was so frustrated with the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And what he was frustrated about is they were not representing him the way that he really was. That's what really made him the most angry. You know, there's a story in uh, John chapter 9 about a man that was healed from blindness. And under the old covenant, see, that's another thing we got to learn. When you read your Bible, pretty much the Old Testament doesn't stop at the four Gospels. Really, the Old Testament continues on into the four Gospels. We consider and we say that the four Gospels are, are the New Testament, but it's really, it's not to the end of the books of the four Gospels that the New Covenant starts. The New Covenant doesn't start until Jesus was crucified, buried, and rose again. That's when the New Covenant starts. <clears throat> so that's why a lot of people get confused reading the four Gospels and thinking they're part of the, the New Covenant. And then they're, they're reading stuff that Jesus said, and Jesus said to do, and I hear this saying, if it's in red, do what Jesus said. No, a lot of what Jesus said in there doesn't pertain to us. He's talk, he was talking to the religious Jews, or he was talking to the Jews who had the law mindset, and he was trying to bring them to the end of themselves, trying to get them to realize that they couldn't do it. They couldn't be as good as they thought they could be. But the religious leaders, they had gotten so far away from God, they were not representing him at all. And that's what Jesus had such a difficult time with and why they didn't recognize him because they were so far away from the nature of God. That's why they didn't recognize Jesus. If they had been in tune with God and in light of God and, and understanding, see, read even the old covenant. It, all, it told them to look for the Messiah, to look for this. To, you know, there's a, a Savior's coming. And here the Savior comes right in front of their face. And they don't see it. Because they're not understanding God's true nature. And they've actually presented it in a way that was beneficial to them. The religious system had become basically a uh, status symbol and a social club and a way to... Um, have power and control over people, and that's what they—that's what they were doing. But Jesus says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." It's interesting. The in the old covenant, and that these, this is an example of a type and a shadow. The tabernacle, uh, which was the traveling temple when they were out in the wilderness, the Jews. 
and then the temple were both uh, they're both pictures of us. They're, they're both pictures of, of a believer. Uh, the tabernacle is um, the babe, the newborn, and then the temple is more the mature uh, believer and what we should be as we mature in Christ. But you know there was three entrances into the tabernacle area or temple area, and each one had a door. The outer court, had a door that went into the inner court, which had a door which went into the Holy of Holies. These three doors had names. In the Hebrew, the door names were the outer court was the way. The inner court was the truth. And the Holy of Holies was the life. See, this when Jesus talked, he didn't just make these things up. I mean, everything had a point. Everything had a reason behind it. When he said this to the Jews, they knew exactly what he was talking about. When he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he knew they were knew you're talking about the entrance to the outer court, the inner court, and the Holy of Holies, which drew you into the presence of God. When you got to the Holy of Holies, you went through the last entrance, you were in the presence of God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the door into the outer court, the truth the door to the inner court, and the life, the door that takes you into the presence of God Almighty. But we can stay in the outer court if we want, and a lot of the church does. But Jesus wants to bring us all the way in to the Holy of Holies. That's why the, uh, the veil was ripped from top to bottom when Jesus said it is finished on the cross, the veil separating the entrance to the Holy of Holies was now open. Now we have open access through Jesus Christ to the Holy of Holies, to the presence of God, to communicate, to have a relationship with, to dwell in his presence all the time, whenever we want. Another interesting uh, little tidbit on the tabernacle and the uh, temple. Tabernacle being the beginning stages or the immature, the babe in Christ, and then the temple is the mature. Uh, the Ark of Covenant was in there. And then the tabernacle, the Ark of Covenant had inside, it had the, uh, the two tablets of stone that the law was written on. And then it had the pot of manna. And then it had the um, uh, staff of Aaron. And these represented the um, rebellion of man. And the law was, the stone represented the rebellion of man against God's law. The manna was God's provision. Man turned his nose up to manna, God's provision. And then the staff represented authority, which was Aaron's staff. And the people turned their nose up and rebelled against the authority that God put in place. So all these represented man's rebellion. But God had him put it underneath uh, the, uh, or in the ark, underneath the mercy seat, which is where they put the blood. So all of our rejection, even as um, 
you know, when we first come, you know, to God, it's under the mercy seat. It's under the blood. It's covered under the blood. So God doesn't see our rejection of his law. He doesn't see our rejection of his provision. He doesn't see our rejection of his authority. He sees the blood of Jesus. But what's cool is that in the temple, now, the ark is there. But there's only one item left inside. Does anybody know that what, what it is? The only thing that's left inside is the two tablets of stone. The law. The pot of manna is not there and the rod of Aaron is not there. No insignificant detail in the Bible. Why would this be? As a mature believer, in Jesus, our Father wants to see, uh, wants us to see Jesus as our manna, as our provision. In Jesus, He wants to see, He wants us to see Jesus as our authority, but He also wants us to see Him in His resurrected life. The staff that Aaron uh, put in there to prove that uh, well when it happened with the staff uh, uh, and they were rebelling against the authority they put a bunch of people's staffs down and uh, they left overnight and they came back and my, uh, Aaron's staff had budded it was an almond almond tree almond branch and had, had buds on it it had come back to life Okay. well this in the new temple represents resurrection life that's resurrection life. That uh, staff was separate from its roots, was separate from, separated from its life. There was no life in it, just like Jesus was separated and cut off from this earth and buried. But then he rose again with resurrected life. And that's what the almond buds represent. When that staff budded and came back to life, that was resurrection life. So... These two things God wants, he wants brought out. He wants the bread of life, the manna, he wants that bread out. Jesus is our bread of life. He wants the, the staff that butted, the almond staff that represents resurrection life. Jesus is our resurrection life. We have resurrection life in Jesus. We have the bread of life in Jesus. The only thing that God doesn't want us to bring out is the law. That's why the law is still underneath the ark of the or the, the mercy seat. And he wants it to stay there. That's why it's so dangerous for the church to start teaching about the Ten Commandments, to start teaching about the law. God wants it to stay under the mercy seat. But he wants us to talk about Jesus as our bread of life. He wants us to talk about the resurrected life that now you have in him. You have health. You have healing. You have wholeness. That's what resurrected life is. And we are to be partakers of it. We are to be radiating it just like Jesus did. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. This is 
uh, I love this verse, and it's so powerful, and it's one I hope you take and uh, meditate on it. But it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, and he's talking about the old covenant. You know, he, he talked in, in portions and in parts and in pieces. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See, Jesus isn't just a glimpse of God. He isn't a uh, part of God, like the Old Testament, like the law, like the prophets. He is the exact representation of God in his nature. So we can look at everything that Jesus did and declare that that's the nature of God. When people came to him that were sick, did Jesus say, well, let's sit down and talk about it. Let's see what you did. And then let's see maybe, you know, that God is, uh, you know, I got to check with my God because my father, because maybe it, what you did, you know, he's given you this, you know, as punishment. Did Jesus ever do that? Then we cannot use that as a doctrine, as a theology to say that God gives you sickness to teach you a lesson. Did Jesus ever deny anyone that came to him for healing? No one. So then we cannot have a doctrine that says it might not be God's will to heal you. We don't know God's will. His ways are higher than our ways. See, that's all Old Testament talk. His ways used to be higher than our ways, but they're not anymore. They're revealed in Jesus. So Jesus didn't deny healing anybody. So that's God's true nature. This is how we decipher and we figure out and understand what God's nature is. 1 John 3, 2, under the heading of Revelation of Jesus slash God's nature, equals transformation for us. It says, Beloved, now we are children of God. It doesn't say we're going to be children of God. It says we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. It says, To see permanent changes, we need to let go of the behavior modification method or the what would Jesus do type of attitude, which most often brings us back under the law of rules and regulations. Any changes in behavior, behavior are usually only temporary because they have not come as a result 
of the revelation knowledge of who we are, but from a fear or performance-based attitude pressed on us either by ourselves or others, trying to make us earn something that we already have. When we don't see a permanent change, or we see limited change, or maybe no change at all, we can get discouraged. And this can, you know, fits in with healing, you know, too. We can get this attitude is, okay, I'm coming to all the healing, healing classes. I'm confessing, you know, all the healing scriptures. I'm doing this right. I'm doing that right. Then, you know, I should be healed. But see, that's a performance-based mentality, and it's coming from the outside. It's not coming from the inside of you, understanding who you are already. It's not coming from the foundation of who Jesus is and the revelation of who Jesus is and that by Jesus' stripes you have been healed. There's a big difference, and it's a subtle, it's bigger, but it's very subtle. Because all those things, you know, the confessing of the verses and, um, <coughs> excuse me, um, you know, coming to Cindy's class. I mean, those are all good things. But if it's under a performance-based mentality, then it's just a matter of time before uh, something will happen and you will be filled with doubt and confusion and condemnation. And that's the next thing. It says this can open the door to doubt, fear, blame of ourselves or others or of God or other things and results in condemnation. Therefore, instead of striving to modify our behavior or do what Jesus did, our focus should be on getting knowledge of God's true nature, seeing him as he is, through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this will produce the fruit of Christ-likeness, the spirit in our lives. And I alluded to this a little bit uh, earlier, but Colossians 1.27 is a verse that uh, I just want to impress on you uh, with the understanding of Jesus in you. It says, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. See, this was a great mystery. This was a great mystery to the Jews. They couldn't figure out how this was even possible. They say, and Paul got the privilege of revealing this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. Just meditate on how powerful that is. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, I, we read 1 John 3, 2, and, and that verse can um, and has been taught in the majority of circles that it's talking about something that's going to happen in the future because it says, uh, and it has not yet been revealed what we should shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. And they say that's when Jesus returns, comes back. For we shall see him as it is. <clears throat> but I believe, and I'm going to try to prove a point here in a minute, um, that what it really means when it says, but we know that when he is revealed, doesn't mean when we see Jesus when he comes back. I believe that when he is revealed means when you see who Jesus really is and you see him revealed 
that he is in you, that you have Christ in you, the hope of glory, that Jesus bore all sickness, all disease, all of the curse, and he redeemed us from the curse. When we get that revelation, that's seeing Jesus revealed. That's him being revealed. And then we shall be like him. You shall be like him. When you see that he bore the stripes on his back so you could be healed. And now he has the resurrected life, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not Jesus in you, it's Christ in you, the Messiah in you, the resurrected Jesus is in you. So now you have the resurrected life of Christ Jesus in you. When you see that, when you get a revelation of that, when it's revealed to you that, when I keep telling you this over and over and over and over again, you get a revelation of that and you see him like he is and then you become like that. (coughs) Excuse me. Now to back this up, I want to go to Luke 19, 1 through 10. And this is a story about Zacchaeus. And we... um, Uh, studied this a couple weeks ago. Cindy uh, taught on this. There's a lot of meat in this story, and I encourage you to read it over and over again. It says, He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable to, And he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When he saw it, when they saw it, the religious Jews, the jealous Jews, they all began to grumble, <coughs> saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. (coughs) Now see, you go back to verse 3. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was. We all should be trying to see who Jesus is. We should all be looking for more and more revelation of who Jesus is, what he's done, who we are in him. Zacchaeus wanted to find out. Zacchaeus was looking to see who is this Jesus? What has he really done? What can he do for me? Zacchaeus was so determined that he climbed a tree. He wouldn't let 
the other people around him persuade him or sway him into what Jesus was. He wanted to see it clearly for himself. It's interesting, uh, like I said, just the names and places and, and just the depth in the Bible is so cool. <clears throat> you know, just stop and think when you read, why does the Holy Spirit do or say certain things? Like, why would he tell you that it was a sycamore tree? Who cares? Couldn't he just say he climbed a tree? What difference does it make is it to you if it's a sycamore tree or not? <laughs> no insignificant detail in the Bible, in the word. Sycamore actually was a type of fig tree. So it was a fig tree. Fig trees are very significant all through, all through the word. But this one has even a little more significance than just the free uh, fig tree. There's the root word from um, the sycamore uh, that has a word that's connected that has the exact same word in it. And that word means extortioner, to cheat, or to defraud. So Zacchaeus climbed this tree. He's in the tree of fraud. He's in the tree of extortion. He's in the tree of cheating. That's who he thinks he is. That's who the people see him as he is. He's sitting in this tree of extortion. That's his life. But you know what Zacchaeus' name means? His name means pure. His name actually means righteousness. So here is righteousness sitting in this tree of extortion because he sees himself as an extorter. But Jesus comes and Jesus sees righteousness sitting in that tree of extortion. And Jesus picks that fruit, pulls that fruit out, even though it came out of an extorted tree, out of a corrupt tree, he pulls righteousness out of it. Just like you and me, we came from extorted, perverted, corrupted trees. Jesus sees righteousness. He picks out the righteous fruit from that tree and says, Zacchaeus, come with me. I'm coming to your house today. I'm abiding with you. And now because of me, you are no longer an extorter. You are no longer a cheater. You are righteous because of me. Zacchaeus repented. Did Jesus come and tell him everything that he had done wrong? Did he demand Zacchaeus confess his sins? To make him a list of everything that he's sorry for? Jesus didn't say a word about that. Jesus said, I'm coming to your house today to abide with you. Fellowship. Companionship. Dwelling with you. And Zacchaeus repented. And he turned from his extorting, cheating ways and says that he's going to give back four times as much 
God didn't ask that of him. But see what the goodness of God does? The goodness of God leads man to repentance. Not the pointing finger, not the accusations, not the condemnation, but the goodness of God is what will lead man to true repentance. Now see, he saw Jesus as he really was, and there was an immediate change. So I believe that that backs me up and the understanding of John first or first John three two, that when Jesus is revealed doesn't mean necessarily mean that when he comes back. It's when he's revealed to us right now. Jesus was revealed to Zacchaeus who he was right then and there. He had heard of Jesus and then he saw it for himself and it revealed to him who he was and it changed his life. And it changed him from the inside out. Zacchaeus was radiating Jesus now. It wasn't a five-step program that he was going to have to go through to try to make himself a better person. Again, self-righteous works and a performance mentality. No, it changed him from the inside out. That's what each one of you, as a born-again believer, has been changed from the inside out. And when you see Jesus more and more, and you see who Jesus really is, then the change will be from the inside out. You will realize who you are from the inside out, and you will start radiating, and you will start glowing, and you will start representing the love of God and the true nature of God from the inside out. The last page is, as you can see, when you seek to see Jesus as he is, he reveals God's true nature. This results in a complete change of life, not only in salvation, but in attitude and actions. Your life will be a reflection of how you perceive God. The primary reason your life is the way it is is because of your perception of God. And the reason your perception is distorted is because we have not fully seen him as he is. Matthew 16, 13 through 15. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? You can read this for yourself, but I want to look you in the eye and ask you the same question. Who do you say that Jesus is? It doesn't matter what I say Jesus is. It doesn't matter what your pastor says, who Jesus is. It doesn't matter who, you friend, who, you, who your friends say Jesus is. Who do you say that Jesus is? Stop relying on other people's revelations. Stop relying on other people's understanding of who Jesus is. 
stop relying on other people's misunderstanding of who Jesus is. This is what changed my life. When I stopped just taking my church's word for it and I started asking the question, who Jesus is, it changed everything. Things that I thought I was so sure of because my pastor had told me and I had been taught it for you know 30 or 40 years. When I looked at it with open eyes and an open heart and I let the Holy Spirit reveal who Jesus is, it changed everything. When we run into healing ministry, we run into this where people, and rightfully so, they, they come, they're hurting, and they want answers, and they want to be healed. And Joe and I were talking about it earlier, and, and God will heal you. I mean, you don't have to be a believer to be healed. And God uses people in this ministry. You know, they have gifts of healing, and just their faith will be enough to, uh, uh, for your healing to manifest. But that won't only last for a certain period of time. You cannot live, you cannot survive off of other people's revelation. That will come to a point where it's going to be you and God, and you're going to come to a crossroad point, and you're going to have to make a decision. Am I going to believe God? Or am I going to go down another path? Am I not going to believe? Or whatever, the choices are, are, are many. But, you know, this instance of people being healed, uh, you know, instantly, miraculously, not even being a believer, I mean, it's great. It's great. But these people need a shepherd. They need to be led and pointed to Jesus and give them the understanding. Why did that happen? Why did that happen? It wasn't, it's not a magic trick. Why did that happen? And see, that's where the body of Christ has been duped and led down such a corrupt path of anti-God, anti-Christ teaching. Because we don't check it out for ourselves. Is all this I'm doing it. Don't believe it because I'm saying it. Check it out for yourself. Get the word out. You check it out. But you will have questions and stuff. But that's when you come back to the shepherd and ask him, and then he will lead you. And see, that's what we're supposed to be doing as shepherds of God's sheep is leading and pointing them to Jesus. And the more we point you to Jesus the more you'll see Jesus as he is, and then the more you'll become as Jesus is. Examples of who people think that God is or Jesus is. If you believe that God controls everything that happens in the world by his sovereignty, this is a very popular teaching in the church, that God is sovereign, God's in control, you know, we just have to do the best we can and uh, hopefully we stay out of his way. 
and uh, we'll get on his good side. If that's true, that means that God is responsible for disease, for war, for murder, for rape, for children being born abducted, addicted to drugs, and on and on. And if you have this mindset, and if you've heard this teaching, then more than likely your impression, impression of God is not going to be good. And I think that's where a lot of people run away from God. A lot of people deny God and, you know, atheism and uh, just on and on because they can't believe that a, a God that is good would do this, you know, to his children. If you got, believe God's love, blessing, power, answers to prayer are conditional and that they are dependent upon your own righteousness or holiness, then you will find yourself constantly striving to do better. And when these things are not evident in your life, hopping on a never-ending treadmill of self-righteous dead works. You know, God is always trying to show us who he is. Jesus is always trying to show who God is. And when we ask to see who Jesus really is. It will be revealed to us. 2 Peter 1, 2-3 says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace and peace can be multiplied to you. How? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything. Does it say some things? A little bit of this, some of that, a little healing, a little of this, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Life, pertaining to life, that's physical. Godliness, that's spiritual. So everything pertaining to physical and spiritual life. has been granted to us through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. The grace and peace of God comes through knowledge. But what kind of knowledge? Knowledge in itself can be, can be destructive too. You know, just learning about the Bible, like we were talking about, you get a lot of knowledge about the Bible. A lot of people, a lot of pastors know a lot about the Bible. But they teach a lot of condemnation. They teach a lot of, uh, you know, Old Testament law. Knowledge of God must come through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I said, you can get knowledge through... Moses and the prophets and other sources, but it does not produce grace and peace unless it is presented in the light of what Jesus taught, said, and did. I'm just going to wrap up now. We, I just want to share an interesting tidbit that was part of the, uh, the story about the woman that was caught in the act of adultery and how God was showing who he really was and showing the true nature of God. 
And to prove that he was God and it was God's true nature, uh, Jesus gave a, a subtle hint and a subtle clue. As the Pharisees and Sadducees, they, they came presenting this woman that she had been caught in the act of adultery, in the very act of adultery, it says. And they presented her to Jesus and basically said, you know, the law, or Moses says that we should stone her. Uh, but they knew that Jesus, with his um, presentation of grace uh, would be um, uh, really ridiculed if he said to stone her because he came presenting grace. But he had to uphold the law. So they said, oh, you know, the law says to stone her. You know, so what do you say? So Jesus, so cool. Jesus bends down and he starts writing on the ground with his finger. And I've seen a lot of movies, even uh, Mel Gibson's The Passion has got that scene and Jesus draws a line in the sand, you know, like, almost like daring him to cross it. But if you, again, read the full context and the context of the story, where it takes place. This takes place in the temple. Okay, the temple ground was not sand. The temple ground was stone. Jesus rode down with the, or bent down with his finger and he's writing on the stone. Do you remember another finger in the Old Testament that wrote on stone? When Moses received the Ten Commandments from God, God wrote the Ten Commandments on the stone. Jesus is telling them, you come to me presenting the law. I wrote the law. You come to me presenting the woman. When the law says the woman and the man had to be brought together. So right there, Jesus had them. They weren't even upholding the law as the way it was supposed to be to begin with, let alone challenging Jesus. Jesus stood up. They went through some dialogue, and then Jesus bent down again. How many times did God write the Ten Commandments? He had to do it twice because the first time Moses threw it on the people as he came down and they were breaking the very first commandment that was, <laughs> that was on the Ten Commandments and he cast a stone at it. So Jesus, that's why he did it twice. But the first time, see, law was presented to man full of God's wrath because that was what man chose. Man said, all that you say to do, we will do. So God said, okay, you want it this way? Fine, I'll give you that way. Moses came down, it was full of wrath and anger, and even Moses, when he saw that, he just threw the stone. Jesus, the first time, he asked him, you without sin, 
cast the first stone. Presenting G or Moses, just like Moses, he cast the first stone on. That was wrath. That was God's wrath. But the second time, before Moses went up, the second time, Moses uh, met with God. Moses talked with God. Moses basically begged and pleaded God to have grace and mercy. And that the only way that he would come up there is if he showed him grace and mercy. And I think it's in Exodus 33, but read the account, the second account, when Moses went up. You won't, you'd be, you'll be surprised how many times grace and mercy are mentioned in the passage as Moses is up there getting the law the second time. So the second even God knew that man, see, it, it, was, it was a blessing that Moses threw those commandments. If it had to come down all the way, everybody would have died because it was full of God's wrath and anger. But the second time, it was given to Moses, the same law, but it was given with grace and mercy and compassion with him. And then when Moses came down, that's how it was even able to be among the people without them all dying. But Jesus, the second time he bent down, he had grace and compassion. And then that's when uh, they all left. And then he said, woman, where are those that accuse you? And uh, he, she said, they're gone, nobody, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Grace and mercy, but he's showing this is the true nature of my father, God who wrote the law, wrote the Ten Commandments. He knows exactly what you did, and he chooses not to condemn you. Same with us. He knows. Don't, don't, don't think you're getting away with anything. Don't think that you hide anything from God. He knows, and he chooses to love you. He chooses to love you. And he chose to send a Savior because he wants to have an intimate relationship with you. This is the reason for the cross. It was, you know, sin had to be dealt with, but that's not the main reason Jesus came. He knew he had to deal with sin. Jesus came to restore the relationship between our Father and us and was able to make it possible that he could dwell right inside of us. If we would get a revelation of how powerful this is and how powerfully loved that you are, it will change your world. It will change everything about you and you will radiate. God loves you. And like I started the service off, Fran and I, every time we're around you, we're just going to talk about God's love, Jesus, and how Jesus reveals who God is and his love for you. A lot of people say that, oh, yeah, that was good for Jesus. He did that to prove a point when he was here. But my word says in Hebrews 13, 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus healed then. Jesus heals now. Jesus doesn't condemn then. Jesus doesn't condemn now. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
see him for who he really is.